So what have we learned so far? We looked at, what, did we, what, what text did we look at first? We looked at Joel 2 verse 23 and introduced us to the idea of how many types of rain? Two types of rain. What's the first one called? Former rain and the second one is called the latter rain. Now this is because there's two seasons as it relates to harvest. The former rain is to do with the germination of the seed and this one fell in what month of the year roughly? Around October, November is when the early rain fell. The latter rain was what ripened the fruit for harvest, and this one fell around about the time of March and April. The latter rain preceded the harvest, and the point that I made was that you cannot have one without the other. You cannot have loads of latter rain, but no former rain, and still hope for a harvest. You have to have the former rain in order to get the harvest. So as we look at this subject of the latter rain, we see that this is key. The second verse that we'll look at is Isaiah 44, verse 3, which says this, For I will pour water on him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessing upon thy offspring. (laughs) Now what's happening here is this. Isn't that my tooth is annoying me? No, but what's happening here is this. I hope they edit that out. What's happening here is this, is that notice the Hebrew um, verse here. Now, you may have heard people say this in church when we talk about um, different rules of Bible interpretation. One of them is this in the Hebrew, is that they write in the first half of the sentence the idea, the concept. And then what you commonly find is they repeat that same thought or concept in the second half of the sentence, but they change the key words. Now, it makes interesting Bible study, because you can see words that the Bible writer decides to link together. Now, we use this, the classic example of this is we use when we do the study on the seal of God. And we use Romans chapter 4, verse 11, I think it is, where we have the word sign and the word seal in the same verse, used interchangeably. But in this verse, what words are used interchangeably? As it relates to our study. It's the word water and the word what? Spirit. Spirit. I will pour water on him that's thirsty. First sentence. Second sentence, I will pour my spirit upon your seed. Do you see that? The word water and the word spirit are used interchangeably. Therefore, in our study, when we're talking about the latter rain and we're talking about the former rain, what could we really substitute those words for? We're talking about the outpouring of the Spirit early, and we're talking about the outpouring of the Spirit at the end. So latter rain is not really talking about rain, it's talking about the Holy Spirit, amen? And God uses the parable, not really a parable, God uses the illustration of nature, and the rain falls in nature to illustrate how His Holy Spirit falls on us. Is it a good illustration? It's a great illustration. It is a great illustration. So, he's using the word um, water interchangeable with the word spirit. Now, notice here, Zechariah chapter 10 and verse 1. This is a key text on how we should relate to this this subject. In Zechariah 10 verse 1, the Bible says, Ask ye of the Lord rain in the time of the what? 
Now, literally, was this text true? If you were a farmer in Palestine, should you follow this text, yes or no? Oh, yeah. If you're a farmer, if you don't get the latter rain, will you get a crop? Will you get paid? Will you get food? No. You're praying for rain in that time of March, April, that the rain come and give you crops. I mean, people still today, farmers still pray for rain. Pray to God or pray to whatever God they believe in. They still pray to rain, for rain. He said, in the time of the rain, pray for the latter rain. Now, what's the spiritual application of that? In the time period when the latter rain could fall, what should we as the church do? We should pray for the outpouring of what? The Holy Spirit. Like the farmer prays for rain, so we as God's church should be praying for the latter rain to fall on us. Should be praying that our hearts are ready. The rain represents the Spirit of God. Now, let's go back in time. Pentecost is when the early rain fell, collectively. Pentecost is found in the early chapters of the book of Acts, 2, 3, 4, 5. The early rain fell. This began the work of the gospel era. Thousands of seeds were germinated, thousands of souls accepted the message, and thus the work of the Christian church started powerfully. Amen? How many of you have read the early chapters of the book of Acts and been inspired? Anyone? Inspiring reading. Early chapters of Acts, and you read what the church did, you're like, wow! How many of you have read the book of Acts and you've thought, man, if only we could have that, church would be amazing. But that was what's called, what, what was that called? Early rain. Notice it. Just before Jesus comes down, the last time, the latter rain will finish the work of the gospel. So we had the former rain in Pentecost, and before Jesus comes the second time, we will have the latter rain. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 8, page 21, reads, The outpouring of the rain, sorry, the outpouring of the Spirit in the days of the apostles was the former rain. But, sorry, and glorious was the result. But the latter rain will be more abundant. Wow. The latter rain will be more abundant. More abundant than what? In Joel, the Bible says, we read that verse, Joel 2 verse 23. What was that word it was used? Moderately. The former rain was given moderately. What does moderately mean? Measured, limited. How many of you have ever been to a restaurant? And you ordered the food and you were really hungry. And you hadn't been to this restaurant before, so you didn't know how big the portions were. And you ordered your food, and you, I don't know, whatever your favorite dish is, they had it on the menu, so you ordered your favorite food. You ordered some, you know, rice and curry, green curry, red curry, whatever curry it was. And they bring out the food, and there's like this little portion of rice like this. And the curry's in this tiny little bowl on a big, massive plate. You know what I'm talking about? And it's so... Oh, and you're eating tiny little spoonfuls to try and make it last a bit more. 
And even then when you finish, at least if you live in England and you're like me, you're like, oh man, I've just spent however much money on this food and now I feel like going to the fish and chip shop, not to get the fish, but to get the chips and just get some big potatoes and fill myself up. It's kind of like wasted money going out to eat. Some of you are nodding your heads, you know what I mean. You've been out to eat in a fancy place and you've got less food paying fancy prices than you did if you ate street food. It's like moderate, it's measured, it's not enough. Now the early rain was moderate. It was moderate, but we read about 3,000 converted in a day. Does that sound moderate to you? Based on today's evangelistic numbers. If we're going to compare numbers, it's not moderate. That's massive. What about, I think it's Acts 5 verse 15. The Bible says that Peter and John are walking down the road. I think it's Peter or John, and it says his shadow heals a man. I mean, can you get your head around that? Your shadow heals somebody. Imagine if you went to the hospital, Penang Adventist Hospital. I mean, let's try and create a scene where there'll be a shadow, and all the lights go out, but there's like an emergency light in the corner. And as you're walking through the ward as the doctor, the nurse, or the chaplain, or the visiting student singing songs to keep people happy, as you walk through, your shadow goes over each bed as you go along. And as your shadow goes over each bed as you go along, the people jump up and they're healed. I mean, you would then come to church, like, it doesn't matter if there was a testimony time or not, you would grab the microphone. Preacher, hold on. I've got something I need to say. I was just in the hospital. My shadow healed the whole ward. And then the church would nominate you to be conference president. <laughs> You'd be like, wow, you know, this is amazing. Now we read these stories in shock and awe. But the real shock and awe of all these stories is that was moderate. That was measured. That was like that limited plate of food you get at a restaurant when you expected to get more. It's like small. It's only the foretaste of what is to come. Lame men walking. Peter and John went to pray. We sing the song. They met a lame man on the way. Silver and gold are by none. In the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. I mean, this is amazing stuff. If we came to church and each day we came to church, we had just met a homeless man or we'd met a cripple on the way. And as we talked to them, just in passing, not like, I'm ne- not like we're kneeling there and we're praying and we're, and we're, and we're weeping for an hour. We walk, yep. Oh, yeah, walk. You walk. Yeah, yeah you walk too. Oh, when you walk as well. And you jump up too. And we're just like, it's so, it's so casual. We're just saying it in passing, you know. It would be amazing. We would get to church just like floating on air, bouncing, be like, yeah, I'm now ready to worship. Now, this was the experience of the apostles in the first chapters of Acts. And we're told that this was the early rain. Moderate. Now, the privilege for us is we get to live in a time when we can see the outpouring of the latter rain. But as we're we're going through this, I don't know about you, but for me, it's like, We're disconnected from this. And as we study what that is, when we think about what the latter rain is, it's like, whoa. It seems like our church experience is so far away from that. Is that fair? It's like, we're not, like, we can't connect with that. That seems like, you know, 
mythical almost. If something's more than that, like, we just, we struggle to get our head around it. Ellen White tells us in early writings, page 278, that sick people will be healed, that miracles will be wrought. She tells us that the message will close with a power and strength exceeding the midnight cry of the 1840s, what we just looked at. So the message will close with strength and power. Sick people will be healed. Miracles will be wrought before Jesus comes. Early writings 278. We're told that during the time of the latter reign, a loud cry and loud cry, a glory rests upon the people of God. Read here. Letter 3, 1851. I saw that we know not what it is yet to ride on the high places of the earth and to be fed with the heritage of Jacob. But when the refreshing and the latter rain shall come from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power, we shall know what it is to be fed with the heritage of Jacob and ride on the high places of the earth. Then shall we see the Sabbath in its importance and glory. She's saying that we still don't really yet know what it means to see the Sabbath in its glory. We don't really yet know what it means to use these terms, fed with the heritage, ride on the high places. You know, we read that verse in the Bible that, you know, if you keep your foot away from the Sabbath, I'll cause you to ride on the high places. Now, what does that mean? She says, we don't yet know, but we will know. We think we know what a good Sabbath is to here. We don't yet know what a good Sabbath is. Like a really good Sabbath. So collectively, to summarize what we've looked at so far, collectively, corporately, the whole church together, the early Christian church in the book of Acts received the latter rain. Oh, sorry. Received the former rain or the early rain. Collectively, at the end of time, when the loud cry message is given, the latter rain will be given to God's end time church. Now we are somewhere here. So, question. Question. None of us were there when the early rain came on the church. Now in ancient Palestine, and even today, if you don't get the early rain, then you can't get the... Now you and I were not there in the book of Acts. We were not there when the early rain fell on the church, but we're praying that we receive the latter rain. So if you weren't there when the early rain fell, but we're praying for the latter rain, how can we individually get the early rain to prepare us for the, the latter rain? Now, we were not there in the days of Pentecost. So what is the early rain? What is the early rain for you and I today? The early rain is the work that the Holy Spirit must do on our hearts today, every day. Each and every day is the early rain in our hearts. So none of us can say, well, I missed it, so guess I missed that boat. The Holy Spirit working on our hearts today is, to use the spiritual term we're using at the moment, the early rain, or it can be, the early rain falling on our hearts. Okay? Notice here, Testimonies to Ministers, TM will be the abbreviation, page 506. As the Jew 
and the rain are given first to ripen the seed to germinate, and then to ripen to harvest, so the Holy Spirit is given to carry forward from one state to another the process of spiritual growth. The ripening of the grain represents, that would be the end, represents the completion of the work of God's grace in the soul. By the power of the Holy Spirit, the moral image of God is to be perfected in the character. We are to be, what the next two words say, holy, what? Transformed into the likeness of who? Christ. So, she starts off using the imagery of the rain. As the rain falls to germinate and ripen, so the work of the Holy Spirit on our hearts is the same. It's the same. Notice here, testimonies, same, same page, same page, 506. It says, the latter rain ripening earth's harvest represents the spiritual grace that prepares the church for the coming of the Son of Man. Now the point is this, the early rain might fall for ages. But without the latter rain, Christ couldn't come. Without the early rain, you can't get the latter rain. It is vital for us to understand what the early rain is. Otherwise, we can't get the latter rain individually. Unless the former rain has been given, there will be no life. The green blade won't spring unless the early showers have done their work. This is just explaining from the natural world, what happens? Unless the early rain have done their work, the latter rain can bring no seed to perfection. Now that is true naturally. How does that apply spiritually? How does that apply spiritually? What happens to those who come to the time of the latter rain, but they have not received the early rain at all? What happens? TM 506 and 7. Unless we are daily advancing in the exemplification of the active Christian virtues, we shall not recognize the manifestations of the Holy Spirit in the latter rain. It may be falling on hearts all around us, but we shall not discern it. That is one of the most powerful and also frightening in some ways quotations. Now, what's the point we're making? The point we're trying to make is this. What is the relation in our lives for the early rain and the latter rain? The relationship is this. Just like naturally, if you don't get the early rain, even when the latter rain falls, it won't bring any fruit. The application for us is this. Unless we are receiving the early rain today, tomorrow, Next week, when the latter rain falls on God's people collectively, we will miss it. Not only will we not receive it, but she goes on and says, we won't even recognize it's come. Now that's the part, I'll be honest with you. Humanly speaking, and that's all I am, I struggle to get my head around that part of the quote. I really do. Because there's part of me that thinks, well, Surely when the latter rain falls, I'll know it's falling whether I'm receiving it or not. Do any of you relate to that? 
I'm like, well, I'll, I mean, I'll know if there's, a, if there's you know, 100,000 people getting baptized in, in Saudi Arabia. And if the you know, king of whoever gives his life to Jesus, I'll know about that. Now, I, 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 I can't quite understand that part, how it is going to play out. But I know it's true. And that's kind of the scary part, in a sense. The latter rain is falling. But in many ways, we can relate to that in our own individual experiences in church today. How many of you have been involved in a movement, in a ministry, in something, and you know without a shadow of a doubt through your personal experience, that God was in that work. You just know it. But then there were other people that when they saw your work, said it was the work of the devil, in as much words. And you're like, but I know God was there. It was clear. There's no way. And other people are saying, whatever, those people are crazy, whatever this, whatever that. In some ways, that's a microcosm of what will happen at the very end on those that the latter rain is not falling. We shall not recognize the manifestations of the Holy Spirit in the latter rain. Now, my question is, did those in the time of Pentecost know that something was happening? And this is the key, I think. I think that the key to understanding this quotation is, is to recognize that they will not recognize the manifestations in the latter rain. It doesn't mean they won't know something's happening. They may recognize something is happening. You can't avoid it. But whatever's happening, they don't attribute it to the Spirit of God. Okay? So, did, they, did people know something was happening at Pentecost? They knew something was happening. But they may have just said, oh, it's just a few people being crazy. It's just this. It's just that. But they didn't say it's because the Spirit of God is falling. They didn't attribute it to the Spirit of God. And I think that kind of helps me somewhat understand the previous quote. That while the latter rain is falling, people don't recognize it. It doesn't mean they're blind that something's happening. It may just mean that they don't attribute whatever's happening to God. Notice this quotation here. Slightly smaller verse. It says this. There is to be in the churches a wonderful manifestation. This is Review and Herald, November 7, 1918. A wonderful manifestation of the power of God. But it will not move upon those who have not humbled themselves before the Lord and opened the door of their heart by confession and repentance. That's the early rain. In the manifestation of that power which lightens the earth with the glory of God, they see only something which in their blindness they think dangerous, something which will arouse their fears, and what do they do? They brace themselves to resist it. And this is the part that I underlined for my own emphasis. Because the Lord does not work according to their expectations and ideal, they oppose the work. My appeal to you today is this, on this verse. Do not be one of those people at the end that when the spirit is falling and it doesn't come according to your expectations, you oppose it. 
Ask for a heart, humble, flexible, to move where the Spirit of God is moving. And to recognize with spiritual discernment where God's Spirit is being poured out. That you can be there. That you can be part of it. They have fears and they, they brace themselves. You know, sometimes in our church, it seems sometimes that when you're trying to do what's right, you can meet obstacles and it almost feels like you've met a wall of, of people bracing themselves against something. Because the Lord does not work according to their expectations, they oppose the work. They oppose the work. Notice, when Jesus came, they had studied the prophecies. They had talked about them. And when Jesus came, only a few people accepted him. When Jesus came, how many people were ready to meet him? How many? There was a few wise men. We don't know how many. The shepherds, they were told by the angels, so they rejoiced. That's it, really. Because Jesus didn't come according to their expectations, they missed it. They missed it. Many people will reject the latter rain because it does not come as they expect it to come. This is why personal pride cannot be in the work at all. Because it may be that certain people think that they should be at the forefront of the work when the latter rain comes out. And if they're not at the forefront of the work when the latter rain comes, therefore they don't want to be a part of it. You understand the mindset? Pray for humility. That wherever God calls us to be in the work, we are ready to be a part of it. Some who oppose the latter rain will be people, this is just my own words, who will have been in the work for many years. They will think they ought to know how the Spirit of God moves. And because God does not work according to their expectations, they oppose the work. Don't be one of these people. Amen. In the days of Jesus, those who accepted John, accepted Jesus. Those who rejected John, rejected Jesus. Notice what Jesus said in Luke 16, 31. If they reject, or they hear not Moses, or the prophets, neither will they be persuaded though one came back from the dead. Was that verse fulfilled, yes or no? Who came back from the dead? Lazarus. You know, this is interesting. This comes just after the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. He gives the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. It's a powerful parable. And it's, not a par- it's a parable like the stewardship of the gospel. And after he gives this parable, the people in, in the story say, you know, in the parable it says that the rich man, uh, no, sorry, yeah, the poor man, you know, go and tell his brothers as well that they may listen. And Jesus says, listen, if, they don't, if they're not persuaded by Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded if one comes back from the dead. Jesus resurrected Lazarus. Did it convince the Jewish leaders that he was Messiah? No, that was the final nail in the coffin for them to crucify him. You've just proved your divinity by resurrecting somebody. Surely that, that's convincing evidence. I am Messiah. Here, dead man, raise up. No, let's kill him. That shows how close they were to the Spirit of God. God leads his people. Testimony to the church, volume 1. 1 T, one eight seven. It says, God leads his people on step by step. 
He brings them to different points calculated to manifest what's in the heart. Now, this quotation here is talking about how the process of the early rain takes place on our hearts. Early rain. The Spirit moving on our hearts on a daily basis. He brings them to different points calculated to manifest what is in the heart. So it's likely that God had that lady push in line in the hotel queue with me. Why? Because he needed to teach me something about my patience. Amen? I'm in line. He brings us to different points calculated to manifest what's in the heart. See, I may have thought, I'm a really patient guy. I don't lose my temper. That's fine. I'm cool. Yeah, everything's okay. You know? Disasters happen or like, you know, problems happen in my work. It's okay. I ride the storm. I'm running a youth event in England. Speaker doesn't show up. That's okay. We can handle the problem. Sound system breaks down. That's okay. We can handle the problem. And I may get to the point where I think, you know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty cool and patient with life's problems. And then something little happens where I'm waiting in line in the hotel to ask for an internet password, and someone pushes in front of me, and I'm getting impatient. What is happening? In hindsight, God is revealing something to me, calculated to show what's in my heart. Some endure at one point, excuse the, pe- the spelling, miss, the misspelling, some endure at one point, but fall off at the Next, at every advanced point, the heart is tested and tried a little closer if the professed people of God find their hearts opposed to this straight work, it should convince them that they have a work to do to overcome if they will not be spewed out of their mouth. So every experience in life God allows you to have is to reveal and point out something in your heart. You know, sometimes in church you find this happening where you have, at least in the city of Birmingham, England, I don't know what your context is, but in the city of Birmingham, England, we have about, I don't know, 15 or 16 churches in the one city. And sometimes I was pastoring in Birmingham, what, would you ha- what you had happen was this. You would have a church member in one church that would fall out with a church member in that same church and so would move to another church. And it wasn't long before after being in that church... What often would happen, they would fall out with someone in that church. And in a city where you've got more than one church, you can sometimes see this phenomenon take place where certain people just float from church to church. And it's always the same issue that happens. And it's almost like, sometime, I'm giving you an, uh, an, uh, a big example. What happens is this. We try and run from the problem, but the problem is happening because God's trying to teach us something. So we run from the problem, God allows the problem to happen somewhere else with another personality because he's trying to reveal to us what's in our heart. And if we keep running, God will keep bringing those people in our path until we overcome. Says the angel, God will bring the same page, God will bring his work closer and closer to test and prove every one of his people. Some are willing to receive, is this the same quote? No. Some will receive 
willing to receive one point, but when God brings them to another testing point, they shrink from it and stand back because it strikes directly at some cherished idol. So they overcome, so fine, overcome, fine, overcome, fine. No, whoa, like they stagger backwards. Not that. You know, sometimes in our spiritual lives, it's this, God is leading us, you know, sacrifice or surrender this. Surrender to me your music collection. In the old days, you would, de- you would throw CDs away if you had bad CDs. In these days, you have to delete them from your iPhone. Surrender to me your music collection. Surrender to me your collection of movies. Surrender to me your wardrobe. Let me take control of that. Surrender to me your diet. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. We get to a point where, like, yeah, I can handle the music. I'll listen to classical or I'll listen to whatever music you want me to listen to. That's fine. Surrender your movies, that's okay. I'll get rid of those. They're bad for me anyway. Surrender your clothes, okay. I'll ask the Lord to teach me what to wear. Surrender my food? No, no, no. Some of us say, it's okay. I'll surrender the food, that's fine. And then we come to something else. And when we see that, we're like, whoa, surrender to me your career? Like, no, God. I'll give up all those things, but I still want to do what I want to do. Each step, we come to an idol. Do we shrink? Here they have opportunity to see what is in their hearts that shuts out Jesus. Individuals are tested and proved a length of time to see if they will sacrifice their idols and heed the counsel of a true witness. She says they're proved a length of time. A length of time. So, the work of the early reign, to summarize, is a work of what? Progression. We come to a point, we ask for victory, we accept it, we make changes. We come to another point, we ask for victory, we, accept, we ask God to come into our heart. On that point, give us victory. Some endure on one point, but fall at the next. And the point is, the points are different for every single one of us. Every single one of us, different points. Different things. It's not like there's, okay, it's this, 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 and this. It's different for all of us. It's different for all of us, a different pace for all of us. Who will receive the latter rain? We, let's read again. Those who come to every point and stand every test and overcome, be the price what it may, have heeded the count of the true witness. They will receive the latter rain and be fitted for translation. How many points? Those who come to how many points? Every point. It's not like, yeah, God, you know I've done that and that and that. I know I haven't done that, but so haven't 10 other people as well. And we try and bargain with God. Well, I know I haven't done that, but the whole church hasn't done that either. Therefore, if the whole church hasn't done it, if the pastor hasn't done it, if the elder hasn't done it, and if my parents haven't done it, then why are you asking me to do it? Maybe they're all right. Let's not play the numbers game with God. Repent, Acts 3, 19 and 20 says, and be converted that your sins may be what? Blotted out when the time of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord and he will send Jesus Christ which was preached to you before. Repent, be converted. Repent, be converted when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of God. Notice the stages there. 
Repent, then what? Converted. Why are you converted? That your sins may be what? And then what happens? The times of what? What's that mean, times of refreshing? <laughs> I believe it's the latter rain. As our sins are blotted out from the heavenly sanctuary is when the latter rain comes down. Okay? I saw that none could share the refreshing unless they obtain the victory over how many? Every besetment over pride, selfishness, love of the world. You notice, notice the sins she says there. She doesn't say the sins that we often name, that I just named actually, movies, music, diet. What sins does she name? Pride, selfishness. You know why those sins? They are the most subtle sins of all, and they are the ones that we hide the best. Like, you can be an ordained elder in the church, and your big vice is pride, and no one knows except you. An angel answered, it is the latter rain, the refreshing from the presence of the Lord, the loud cry of the third angel. Now, the question is asked, will the latter rain come to give us victory over sin? Is that the purpose of the latter rain? To give us victory over sin? Let's read this quotation. I saw that many were neglecting the preparation so needful and were looking to the time of refreshing and the latter rain to fit them to stand in the day of God. So they're saying, I'm not going to prepare for God now. Why? Because when the latter rain comes, that will clean me up. Now, you hear this rephrased in different ways in Adventism today. People will say things like, you know, we can't have victory over everything, but when Jesus comes, we'll see him as he is. Now, that's saying the same thing, but just using less direct terminology. Yeah, we're going to be struggling with this and this and this until Jesus comes, but when he comes, he's just going to give us new bodies. She says, I saw how many in the time of trouble without a shelter, they had neglected the needful preparation. Therefore, they could not receive the refreshing that all must have to fit them to live in the sight of a holy God. Today is the preparation day. Amen? Today is that day. Tomorrow is that day. The challenges of today and tomorrow may be different. God will bring you on step by step to show what's in the heart. The passing of time does not prepare us. You know, you ever heard someone say that time is a great healer? You ever heard that phrase? It's a load of rubbish. As I would say in England, it is a load of rubbish. If you have ever lost someone close to you, you know that time is not a healer. You can miss that person after five days the same way you'll miss them and have the pain in five years. If you've gone through a terrible relationship and, I don't know, whatever, the pain you feel now, you can have that same pain in 10 years' time. Time does not heal. Time is a neutral element. You can either use it to ask God to change your heart or you can... Have you ever seen someone that over time gets more bitter? 
more angry, more resentful over time. It's because they're just dwelling on it more and more and more. And as time goes on, it's getting worse. So the passing of time does not prepare us for the return of Jesus. If I just wait five years, I'll get, I'll get, no, 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 no. Time is neutral. You can use your time to prepare, or you can use your time to stagnate, or you can use your time to go back. Time is a, is a neutral element. We must be intentional with our time. Not get stuck in, stuck in a rut. What prepares us? Early writing says the th- two things that prepare us. Agonizing prayer. Is our prayer agonizing, or is it just casual? Agonizing prayer prepares us. And the straight testimony of the message that the Laodiceans prepares us. Agonizing prayer, straight testimony. I think too much of our prayer is just too casual, too formal, and too routine. Agonizing prayer and the straight testimony. The message to the Laodiceans. Not just, yeah, I know, rich, good, faith, um, I salve, righteousness. Not just the knowledge of it. You know, too often we have an understanding of the Adventist message, and I liken it to this. For example, the sanctuary. Most of us have an understanding, if you study the sanctuary, of the basic elements of the sanctuary. 457, 8027, 31, 34, 1844. Most holy place, holy place, laver, um, sac- sac- um, altar of incense, candle- candlesticks, and we can recite it. That is like, if you've ever made a puzzle, that's just like the straight edge of the puzzle. There's a whole picture inside. Too often our understanding of the Laodicean message, our understanding of the Adventist message, is just understanding the framework. And we memorize that framework. But it's all inside. Okay, you know the message to the Laodicean church, theoretically, but it's that inside picture that has to become our experience. I saw some with strong faith and agonizing Christ pleading with God, Their countenances were pale and marked with deep anxiety, expressive of their internal struggle. Firmness and great earnestness was expressed in their countenances. Large drops of perspiration fell from their foreheads. Now and then, their faces would light up with the marks of God's approbation, and again, the same solemn, earnest look would settle upon them. She's describing a group of people in earnest prayer. As I read that, to be honest, for me... I read that, and I'm detached from that experience. I want that experience. Sorry, was someone taking a picture? When pressed under the darkness that God allows, we give ourselves to earnest prayer. Notice here. Evil angels press around, pressing darkness upon people to shut out Jesus from their view, so their eyes may be drawn to the darkness that surrounds them, and thus led to distrust God and murmur. Their only safety was in keeping their eyes upward. So she says that sometimes the darkness that comes on us in our prayer is Satan trying to... Where's our safety in? Looking to God. Upward. Keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, knowing that there's light there. Where do we look up? Safety in looking up. Directing our eyes upward. Where are our eyes when we look upward? 
we can see Jesus. Where is Jesus? He's in the most holy place. What's he doing in the most holy place? He's interceding for us. On our behalf. For us. He's looking to give us hope and courage. The evil angels are crowding around, pressing darkness. Sometimes evil angels have people who help them. Amen? Sometimes the evil angels get other people to criticize, to suggest doubts, to undermine confidence. The key point of this last point, when I say things like that, is don't think in your minds, yeah, that's so-and-so in church. The key point when you read a quote like that, or you read something like that, is to say, Lord, help me not to be that person. Help me not to put doubt in other people's minds. Help me not to criticize other people and be used as an agent of the enemy to pull down someone's Christian experience. Angels of God, early writings 269, had charge over his people, and as the poisonous atmosphere of evil angels was pressed around these anxious ones, the heaven, I love this, I love this quote here, the heavenly angels were continually wafting their wings to scatter the darkness. Isn't that a beautiful imagery in your mind? That Satan's trying to come around you and the angels are there and every now and then as the, as the presence of darkness builds, the angels just whoosh, put their wings and the darkness just... Whoosh. Isn't that a beautiful picture in the mind? The angels just gathered around. I can picture angels around this seventh floor of this building and Satan's trying to come around. He's trying to come in, the, in here. He wants to come in here. You know, I know this workshop here, you guys didn't see it. I could see it. The last workshop, they moved there. And then 10 minutes later, they moved back. The AC wasn't working. The electricity wasn't working. The, the projector wasn't working. Then it got too hot in there. Then they moved back there. Satan's trying to, mm, he wants to do something. He wants to break the sound system. He wants to blow the projector. He wants to do something. And I can just picture above this building, this angel's just good. Whoom. And they sit and have a little talk. Oh, and then they get close. Okay, whoom. Send them back again. It's just like an image in my mind. The angels wafting around to get the darkness away. But that image is on you as well. The angels wafting their wings to scatter the thick darkness. As the praying ones continued their earnest cries, at times a ray of light came from Jesus to encourage them and light up their countenances. When we're down, we're not to stay down and feel pity for ourselves. The saints pray during their pit, these periods of prayer. They don't always like it. But they continue to pray until a ray of light comes from Jesus. You know, sometimes I think that the experience of agonizing prayer is one that we don't like this, so therefore we don't pray deep to avoid us having to experience that. So instead of experiencing that, we just pray shallow. Not everyone takes part in this agonizing. Volume 5 of the t- five testimonies, page 209. The leaven of, ungodly- of godliness has not entirely lost its power. At the time when the danger and depression of the church are greatest, the little company who are standing in the light will be sighing and crying for the abominations that are done in the land. But more especially will their prayers arise in behalf of the church because its members are doing after the manner of the world. The earnest prayers of this faithful few will not be in what? 
They will not be in vain. They will not be in vain. Sigh and cry for the abominations in the land. We are not told to tweet and Facebook the abominations of the land. Amen? We're told to sigh and cry for the abominations in the land. The danger is this, that within the church, as a small group who are praying, sighing, and crying on behalf of the church, the danger is that we can also be another group that start to make lists of those who are in the light and those who are not. It is not our work to start making lists, amen? It is not our work to compile, because sometimes the people you may have compiled on your list of those who are right, God may look at that person and say, no, pride, selfishness. Even though, in light of everything else, it looks like they're fine. Not for us to make the lists. It's not our work to do. The majority is rarely right. 5T136 says, to stand in defense of truth and righteousness when the majority forsake us. To fight the battles of the Lord when the champions are few. This will be our what? Test. You know, it's not easy to stand on your own. Amen? It's not easy. I think some people struggle with this more than others. Some of us have a more of an individualistic streak to us that we don't mind being different. Some of us don't like being different from everyone. Some cultures in this world are more group cultures and some cultures are more individualistic cultures. Depending where you are from in the world. My wife is half Japanese by blood even though she's born and raised in America. And in our marriage we can detect this difference. My, I'm half Icelandic. My dad's from Mauritius. But if there's Icelandic people, there's only 300,000 in the whole country. They are extremely, you have to be to live in that part of the world, they are extremely independent people. Like, they just, independence is their national trait. That's their national trait of character, independence. My wife is half Japanese, different culture. For them, the group, consensus, is all important. Whereas personally, my characteristic, I don't care being different from everyone else. Bothers me not a iota. I could not care if everyone in the room is doing something different and I'm the only one. I'm just like, fine, do your thing. I'll do my thing. It's fine to me. Doesn't, I mean, it doesn't bother my conscience one bit. If it's a preference. I'm not saying if it's right or wrong. If it's a preference, it doesn't bother me. My wife, on the other hand, is different. Like, she, it, like, I can just, it's different. Like, she's got that natural urge to be part of what everyone else is doing as opposed to being different. When the champions of God are few, that's where our test comes. Some I saw, early writings 270, did not participate in this work of agonizing and pleading. They seemed indifferent and careless. That's Laodicea. They were not resisting the darkness, and it shut them in like a thick cloud. The angels of God left these. Angels of God did what? They left them and went to aid the earnest pleading ones. These guys, they're not bothered. Let's go help those. I saw angels of God hasten to the assistance of those who were struggling with all their power to resist the evil angels and trying to help themselves by calling upon God with perseverance. But his angels left those who made no effort to help themselves, and I lost sight of them. 
What she's trying to emphasize here is the importance of agonizing prayer in our daily experience, striving against sin. But too often, we, I think we get into a point where we're just indifferent. And we just cruise. Or we've reached the plateau of our experience and we're okay. Their countenances expressed the conflict which they endured, the agonizing struggle which they passed, yet their features marked with severe internal anguish now shone with the light and glory of heaven. They had obtained the victory and it called from them the deepest gratitude and holy and sacred joy. Notice what she goes on to say. The numbers of this company lessened. Some had been shaken out and left by the way. The careless and indifferent who did not join with those who prized victory and salvation enough to plead and agonize for it did not obtain it and they were left behind in darkness. But notice what she says. Their places were immediately filled by those taking hold of the truth and coming into the ranks. You know those quotations, I don't have the reference on top of my head where we're told that many people will come into the movement, the church, at the end, and many will leave. And I think this is partly that transition. Many careless and different, they'll slip by the wayside. Their places will be taken by others taking hold of the truth and coming into the ranks. Evil angels still pressed around them, but they could have no power. Amen? No power. The question is, are we prepared for that experience? Is it intellectual or is it an experience that we need? Are we prepared for that experience? Very few are prepared for the disappointment that will come when the majority forsake us. Are you prepared to stand alone if need be? It's not easy to stand on your own if need be. I heard those clothed with the armor speak forth the truth with great power. It had effect. I asked what had made this change. What made the change? The angel said, it is the what? Latter rain. So maybe they were timid people, but they had boldness. What made the change? The latter rain made the change. The refreshing from the presence of the Lord, the loud cry of the third angel. This made the change. They had humbled their hearts, received the early rain, the latter rain comes, and it makes the difference. If you study the experience of these people, they had no thought in their hearts that they were holier than someone else. They were not boastful of their own righteousness. They were down on their knees and faces in humility of heart, confessing their sins and the sins of others. But I hardly think that it 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 was for them to boast of the fact that they were among the faithful few. Amen? But let us never be ashamed out of the movement of God. Let us never be scorned, ridiculed out of the movement. Let us never come to the place where we say, I guess I had better forget all I was seeking and just go along with the crowd. The crowd's never right. Unless it's the crowd telling you where the lunch queue is. That crowd is normally right. Amen? But when it comes to moral issues, the crowd is not right. Even, unfortunately, within our church, the crowd is often never right. I 
I asked the meaning of the shaking. We're going to look at this a bit more tomorrow. I had seen and was shown that it was caused by the straight testimony, called forth by the counsel of the true witness to the Laodiceans. So the shaking is caused by the Laodicean message being preached and experienced. This will have its effect on the heart of the receiver, and I will lead him to exalt the standard and pour forth the straight truth. Some will not bear this straight testimony. They will rise up against it, and this will cause a shaking among God's people. You see, everyone in the church is going to resist something. Amen? Everyone resists something. Some of us resist the truth. Some will resist the darkness. Those who resist the darkness of the evil one through agonizing prayer on a daily basis, those who resist the darkness receive the latter rain. But those who resist the straight testimony will not receive it. So when we're looking at the, the subject of the latter rain, the real important part of the latter rain study is the what? Is the early rain. Because without the early rain, the plant gets no fruit. Without the early rain on our hearts, today, this afternoon, this evening, tomorrow, without the early rain on our hearts, we don't get to take part in the great grand conclusion of our church. Without the early rain on our heart today, we don't get to be a part of seeing thousands converted in a day, of seeing sick people healed and miracles wrought. We don't get to experience that because we won't receive the latter rain. Without resisting in our prayers now, agonizing in our prayer experience now, we won't get to experience the latter rain, when it comes. It's not like we can just be like, ah, 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 please, last minute. I mean, God accepts people anytime they give their hearts to him, amen? But the best time to have Christ work on your heart is always the what? It's always the earliest time. You know, sometimes we have the thief on the cross. And we often look at the thief on the cross and think he had the easy way out. You ever heard that? I just want to be like the thief on the cross, except Jesus, wait, wait, you know, do my own thing as a, as a young person, and then when I see the things take place at the end of time, I'll give my heart to Jesus, and then be ready. Now, I'm not going to say that will never happen for some people. Maybe it will. But you're playing a dangerous, dicey game with death. And sometimes we use the thief on the cross as an example of someone that accepted Jesus last minute and had an easy way to heaven. Uh-uh. I don't think it was easy for the thief on the cross. You try being righteous when there's nails, literal nails, in your hands. You try not being frustrated and angry and bitter when everyone around you is mocking you. Now, let's follow the experience of the thief on the cross. What did they do to his legs before Sabbath? They broke his legs. Now, breaking the legs was to speed up their death. But there's no guarantee, listen to me carefully, and maybe this is a bit of speculation, there's no guarantee that after they broke the thief's legs, he actually died within two minutes. There's no guarantee. 
It just meant it sped up their death. Let's follow his death through. Let's follow his death through. They break his legs. They bring the cross down. They pull the nails out. And if you know anything about arrows or nails going in, it causes more pain coming out than going in. That's where more bleeding takes place. When you look at some of these soldiers from, I remember watching the documentary on Genghis Khan, and they would always wear silk, so when the arrow came in, they could pop it out, because it caused more damage on the way out than the way in. So they pulled the nails out. What happened to the thieves who died on the cross? Where did they go? Did they have a tomb, yes or no? No tomb. Where did they go? They went to the Valley of Hinnon, which was where we get the word for hell from in the Bible, Gehenna. That's why Jesus said, the smoke goes up forever and ever. Because there was a dump on the side of the city that burned continually. That's where the bodies of criminals, that's where the rubbish went. So when they took the thief from the cross, they would have taken him to the rubbish dump. To burn to death. If he hadn't died yet. Now they're not going to carry him nicely. They probably would tie his feet together and drag him by the back of a donkey. Now let's suppose he was still alive. Today you'll be with me in paradise while you're being dragged along a dusty road. And then he gets thrown on the rubbish heap. And let's just say, because he was a young man, he was strong, let's just say he made it through the first night. And when the sun comes up the next morning, as there's rubbish around him, as there's wild animals eating the rubbish around him, as there's smoke and as there's dirt coming into his thing, now the sun comes and beats down on him. It's possible that if the thief did not die on Calvary, which he probably didn't, it could have taken him one, two, three days to die. Now you try being sanctified, lying on a rubbish heap, and the only thing you have in your mind to remember is, today you'll be with me in paradise while you're lying in a garbage heap. Sometimes we look at the thief on the cross as the person who got the easy way out to heaven. Mm-mm. The thief on the cross had a very hard, trying, tough way to the gates of paradise. It may have been short, but those of you who have ever experienced bodily pain, you know that five minutes can feel like five hours. How many of you have ever had a toothache? It's like time stands still. I had to get my wisdom teeth taken at once, and it was like, you know, time stands still. I mean, it's just like you can't get rid of the pain. When you're in pain, time just drags. That thief, yeah, he, he accepted Jesus last minute. But I guarantee you, while he was lying on that rubbish heap, he probably thought, I wish I gave my life to Jesus back when I was a kid. Back then. I could have missed all this. God wants us to go through the experience of praying for the early reign now and having victory over our trials and sins now. There may be some people that join last minute and pray for God. It'll be ten times harder. It's not to say people won't come into our church last minute or people won't give to their life to Jesus last minute and make it to heaven. It's not to say that won't happen. It will. But it will be that much harder under more trying circumstances to develop a character fit for heaven. The best time to give our lives to Jesus is always the earliest time. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, 
or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.